This is episode 289 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are Preparing for Multiple Family Living During SHTF and Survival Gear Dry Run, A Night in the Woods. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 289. Our first article comes to us from Survival Sullivan. And uh, again, it's entitled Preparing for Multiple Family Living During SHTF. You know, one of the things that we always talk about is, you know, if if the big one really hits. It, in Yesterday, we talked a little bit about, you know, being in the city and what that would entail. And today we're going to be talking about if you were in a retreat and then if multiple family members came. So if, you know, cousins and uncles and aunts and brothers and, and all that type of, you know, you had that type of situation going on, that presents a whole different scenario for you. And uh, this article does a really great job of putting some things uh, out there that you might not have thought about and uh, some things that you, you really need to maybe before something like that really goes into effect, if, if something like that happens, that you have this or this mindset that you're able to uh, go into, uh, you know, go into kick into gear, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. And so uh, I think this is a great, this is another side of that, uh, you know, that situation. So let's go ahead and start uh, reading this one. Again, coming to us from survivalsullivan.com. Are you and your family or tribe, my favorite term for mutual assistance group, truly prepared to bug in on your homesteading survival retreat? You have stockpiled all the essential preps, have crops growing, animals in the barnyard, and trained physically while enhancing your survival skill set but may not be enough to get you and your loved ones through a long-term disaster. Previously on Survival Sullivan, we laid out a detailed plan to prep your bug-in home location or bug-out survival retreat for the arrival of your adult children, extended family, and tribe members, whether or not they are preppers themselves. There, we focused on the logistics and layout of the home, all highly important parts of the survival retreat equation to be sure, but... The human aspect must be considered and prepared for well in advance of everyone hunkering down together. Having your children, adult or young ones, or both grandchildren, siblings, and their families, in-laws, parents, cousins, and their families, etc., etc., all under one roof is a recipe for stress and chaos during good times, like holiday gatherings. Magnify the stress, chaos, and clashing personalities tenfold at least, and you will get a good picture of what life will be like when bugging in with other families. And I will add that that's for long term, not just for a week during a holiday. When initially getting your bug out location or live-in homesteading survival retreat ready, your sole focus was on the brick and mortar aspect of the place, as well as stockpiling enough supplies and food to last the tribe for hopefully at least a year. All of your daunting efforts were both worthwhile and essential. Now that they are completed or even while they are still in progress, 
Start developing a plan to keep everyone fully functional, productive, safe, and sane while dwelling on the Prepper Retreat. Part of this creating the Prepper Retreat living plan is mental preparedness, but organizational and stability aspects are equally important and all intertwined. So mental preparedness. Regardless of your professional background, the stressors of SHTF will be enormous. An emergency room doctor, nurse, or surgeon used to dealing with blood and guts on a daily basis will still struggle with mental clarity and emotional turmoil when the bodily fluids being mopped up belong to a loved one, especially small children, and he or she is the only person standing between life and sudden anguishing death for the entire group. A military veteran is also trained to deal with harsh living conditions, blood and guts of people they care about, and a constant threat of armed attackers. The training and experience makes veterans highly valued members of the survival retreat tribe, but does not exempt them from the emotional stress of the battlefield, which has now become their backyard and their fellow soldiers members of their own family. No one knows better than a soldier how quickly a seemingly safe and secure place can turn into a pure bloodbath. When a soldier goes off to battle, he kisses his wife and children goodbye, sorrowfully leaving them safe at home. That will absolutely not be the case when SHTF. Nowhere will ever be completely safe. Every time the soldier walks out the door to take a shift on perimeter patrol, probably more shifts than anyone else, He is doing so to protect his family, while at the same time knowing that his absence also leaves his wife and children less safe. Police officers, firefighters, and paramedics are very familiar with blood, guts, and dangerous situations. They too will be aware of the dangers lurking around every corner, even on a secluded and bolstered prepper retreat. These folks will be the ones trying to keep everyone calm and assured they are going to be just fine even when their first instincts might be screaming otherwise. They will push themselves excruciatingly hard to keep harm as far away from the survival retreat as possible and perhaps cause themselves to become sleep-deprived, edgy, and fatigued. The human body can only function under such mental and emotional stresses for so long and then it either blows or collapses or both. Fear of the known and lack of ability to prevent harm, no matter how well trained they are and how hard they try, will take its toll on not just the veterans, first responders, and medical professionals noted above, but the entire tribe. Fear of the unknown and their lack of ability to prevent harm could drive every member of the tribe, regardless of their age or professional background, to reach the same state of exhaustion and mental dysfunction. Keeping both the most valuable tribe members and the rest of the group as mentally and emotionally healthy as possible will take not just planning, but alertness to evolving stress levels while bugging in at the retreat and frequent checks on all tribe members to ward off breakdowns. Appointing a health official to observe every member of the tribe, check in with those who seem like they are struggling or should be struggling but are showing no outward signs of being stressed, and making the call on a mandatory break from duties is a great idea. Presuming all members of the tribe are well acquainted with one another, the signs of stress should not be very difficult to detect. It's the apocalypse, so of course everyone is going to be going through some measure of stress, but taking out time before the person becomes overwhelmed is a realistic goal. During your pre-SHTF tribe training sessions and meetings, 
talk about duties and choices for the appointment, as well as backup appointees that can be used as a sounding board for the official and to watch for signs of stress in the official in great detail. Such a conversation and plan will not be a comfortable topic for many folks, especially big strong men when the first responder or military background or stubborn strong woman like myself. There will be many sacrifices that must be made during a long-term doomsday disaster. Just count having a touchy-feely conversation about your emotions as one of them. Urge the military veterans in your tribe to discuss cases of PTSD he or she have personally witnessed. Help Help a friend through or perhaps even dealt with themselves. If a heroic patriot can bear his or her soul to talk about how much living through traumatic events can impact the way a person feels and behaves, everyone else in your tribe should be able to put aside any feelings of weakness they associate with admitting to struggling with emotional and or mental stress. Once the tribe understands the importance of dealing with stress before it overwhelms a person and the health inspectors have been selected, hammer out a plan for monitoring the members for signs, how to help them cope, and what type of process is involved with limiting or removing them from their duties and what he or she will be doing while off duty. An immense amount of unstructured downtime may help some get back on an even keel, but could send others deeper into a bout of anxiety or depression. The health inspector, along with any willing members of the tribe, should engage in some type of learning or training, formal or otherwise, to help them learn how to detect signs of mental and emotional struggle and how to help the person through it. If only the health inspectors are learning more about dealing with stress, they must share their findings and new skills with the group and include members in in any standard operating procedures or SOPs or techniques they plan to employ as needed during an SHTF scenario. The SOPs might need to be adapted, enhanced, or completely rewritten several times as additional learning and tribe discussions take place. So stability. As much as many of us hate being tied to a schedule, having a routine helps breed both functionality and stability. No longer having a set schedule and task to complete is most often the hardest part of post-work life for a retiree to adapt to. Sure, no longer having to get up early and go to work each day sounds awesome, and I am sure that it is, but the retiree still has to find something to do with themselves all day. A feeling of isolation and worthlessness can evolve in a short amount of time if a person of any age doesn't have a meaningful way to spend their time. For all of the Walking Dead fans, think back to the scene during one of the early seasons of the show when Lori was having a fuss in Herschel's kitchen with Andrea. Now, Lori was always one of my least favorite characters and I clapped when she finally became zombie bait, but she did make an extremely valuable point when yelling at Andrea over providing stability for the group by making meals, doing laundry, and generally keeping house the best way you can during the apocalypse to make sure everyone felt like family living in a home. I am not saying the ladies of the survival retreat should be planning elaborate luncheons, but keeping to as normal a routine as possible will give many of the tribe members something to do and allow for calming and rejuvenating mealtimes, gatherings for everyone, giving them a chance to de-stress as much as possible. 
The elderly and youngest members of the tribe won't be pulling perimeter checks, but they will need to feel like a vital and contributing member of the group. If left to do nothing more than twiddle their thumbs all day, mental and emotional stress can overwhelm them as well. Food needs to be grown, prepared, preserved, and served. These chores not only fulfill necessary tasks, they also serve for cross-training of skills in times when the ladies and children engaging in them can chat, sharing stories and family history in an effort to keep their minds as busy as their hands and pass time in a positive way. The home must be kept clean to prevent the spread of germs and sickness, inventory of the stockpile preps, a log of eggs collected, the communications hub must be monitored, seeds planted, etc. must also be conducted on a regular basis. The folks assigned to these tasks do not need to be exceptionally mobile, below the age of 60, or capable of lifting heavy bundles. The cousin with the broken arm, the great aunt confined to a wheelchair, and the young mother with a baby on her hip can all contribute to the functionality of the survival retreat by completing these types of chores. Creating stability on the homestead survival retreat involves a lot more than doing chores and sitting down at the table for meals. Children need to learn updates from the defense team need to be given, and comfort items and activities also must be part of a routine life on the survival retreat. Many preppers homeschool their children already and do so by melding hands-on self-reliance and homesteading training into the curriculum. For these families, making the transition and having the material stockpiled to homeschool during an SHTF scenario will be far easier. Children must continue to learn the basics, reading, writing, and math, to be fully contributing members of the survival retreat and prepared for the post-disaster rebuilding of society. You cannot cook or do carpentry on the retreat if you do not possess basic math skills. Science lessons should also continue and become even more vocational in nature. Livestock husbandry, growing food, water, and soil testing, composting, weather prediction, alternative energy production, mechanics, etc. Learning about the history of America to ensure it will not be lost and the freedoms guaranteed in the Constitution will always be upheld definitely should be worked into the prepper homeschool curriculum as well. Set aside an area in the home specifically for homeschooling, even if it is a small space. Only teachers who do not want to foster a love of learning and approach it as a great glorious adventure it is would ever want their pupils to spend the bulk of their time sitting in desks. The history lessons could be taught while peeling potatoes or canning corn and still have the same lasting impact. You can only stockpile as many school supplies as your budget and space allows, so get creative. Your kids will love you for it. Stockpiling papers and pencils is fine, but not exactly necessary. Use chalkboard paint on a wall in the homeschooling area to give the teacher a place to share her lessons and for the children to write and do their math. Go little house on the prairie old school with your survival retreat homeschool and give each child their own little chalkboard to write on. Wipe-off whiteboards can be used for both homeschooling lessons and to organize chores charts for the entire tribe. Lego blocks are great for teaching children their colors, counting, basic math problems, how to follow a pattern, and even for spelling lessons. Write both upper and lowercase letters on small blocks and sight words on longer and larger blocks for the children to put together to match their letters. They can also build sentence towers using the blocks. 
copious amounts of Lego learning and hordes of other free, very, very low cost or free homeschool learning activities and lessons exist on Pinterest and around the internet. Take advantage of them now before the power grid goes down and print off the worksheets, lesson plans, and how-to articles for interactive teaching. Comfort items and activities will give the tribe a brief reprieve from the stress of SHTF survival retreat living and boost morale. Observe birthdays, holidays, anniversaries, and weddings. Make gifts for each other. Stockpile Dollar Tree gifts now to put out at Christmas and birthdays, especially for the children. Dance, sign, play music, burn a little fuel for a a once-a-week-or-a-month movie night, splash around in the pond with your significant other and the kiddos. Make new traditions at the holidays. Christmas and Easter were never intended to become a commercial gift-giving occasion anyway. Paint pine cones to decorate Christmas trees with. Play a board game together by candlelight that the entire tribe can enjoy. Have a low-tech karaoke night and get silly making your own Halloween costumes and sweets from forged materials and stevia you are growing in the garden. No matter what type of fun-loving activity or holiday tradition you plan for SHTF living, it will provide laughter and joy for your loved ones when they need it the most. Faith is an essential part of the lives of so many Americans. Create a small chapel or space that can be used for a place of worship inside the home. Choose lay leaders and hold regular services, Bible school classes for the kids, and sing hymns to help you all get through the many tough times ahead. So, Organization As noted in the stability section above, routine is more important to our daily lives than we would like to believe. When folks know what is expected of them, they are far more likely to succeed and thrive. A survival retreat organizational chart and chore chart should be drafted, discussed, and adapted as many times as needed during tribe meetings and training sessions. If you have not formally identified the leader or leaders of the group, that should be done ASAP. If the group functions with a leader and a council, or entirely by council or some combination of the two, with all adult members of the tribe getting a vote on matters that impact the tribe, get the hierarchy chart written in stone, along with how leaders can be removed, how members can be removed from the retreat, how long council terms are, how new council members are named, etc., Do not simply go with an ad hoc arrangement because you are all family or close friends and get along fine the way things are now. When the SHTF and everyone is living together, tempers will flare, people will get sick and die, and some members will not perform as expected under pressure. Knowing all of the rules and how leadership can evolve when necessary increases stability and decreases stress. Next, you will need a daily duty roster and seasonal task chart. Some chores will need tended to on an hourly or daily basis, but others will only occur monthly or seasonally. Every moment of a tribe member's life on the prepper compound should be accounted for in one way or another. Setting up the schedule should not occur until the group investigates not only what tasks will need to be completed and how many people it will take to do them, but how long each chore will take to complete. If you are not living on the homesteading survival retreat now, get some expert advice about tilling a garden, harvesting a garden, chopping and splitting wood, etc. So you fully understand how strenuous strenuous each chore is and how long it is likely to take. If the tribe members are engaging in the chores in really hot or cold weather, they are likely to take longer. 
If the assigned members are working while sick or on low rations, the chores should also be projected to take longer than anticipated when the work was timed during a training session using a healthy, well-rested, and well-fed individual. There is nothing wrong with adapting a chore length depending upon either the season or the person assigned to the job. You will need to make multiple chore charts to cover all of the tasks needed during a typical SHTF year on the survival compound. Print out multiple chore charts and put them in binders. You can also cover them in clear contact paper to preserve them and make blank forms that are covered in clear contact paper so they can be written upon and then wiped off and reused later. Make an overall group chart showing scheduled duties and individual daily charts with blocks of downtime and sleeping hours for each person. Surveillance and security needs will be scheduled 24-7, so defining sleeping times on the chart will help to ensure spouses get time together and time with their children does not conflict with the chores and duties of anyone in their immediate family. So homesteading survival retreat chores. So here's a couple of lists here for you. Low impact interior chores. Cooking, cleaning, sewing, inventory, laundry, food preservation, homeschooling, morale booster planning activities, nursery care for babies and toddlers, library organization and tending, communications hub, ham radio monitoring, two-way radio charging, etc. Vocational training for adults. This can occur outside as well. And greenhouse tending, starting seeds, compost inspection, transplanting plants, etc. Skilled interior chores. Medical clinic staffing, growing the apothecary and making natural medicines, off-grid utility function and repair, including taking care of composting toilets, and then health inspector duties. Here are some general outside chores. Planting and harvesting, gardening, livestock husbandry, chopping, splitting, and storing wood, fence mending, road driveway maintenance, baling hay, water collection and transport, fishing, hunting, trapping, foraging, fruit grove tending, barn, home, and structure repairs. And here are some skilled outside chores. Surveillance and security team, retreat firefighter, reducing and inspecting for fire concerns, and in addition to being in charge of the fire brigade, mechanical equipment and maintenance repairs, blacksmith, carpentry, welding, vocational training, and construction. These homesteading survival retreat chores are just an overview of the type of work it will take to keep the SHTF compound functional on a routine basis. Each location and group will have specific needs that must be addressed. The prospective chores should not only give you a good idea of the numbers of chores and people needed to complete them, but the specific skill set that will be unbelievably useful in the quest to survive any doomsday disaster. All right, guys, that was a long article there, but a lot of information, and you can kind of get an idea of all the things that would go into it. I mean, when you, you know, a lot of the times when you read the dystopian novels, you know, some of these things don't uh, really play into it, you know, because it would just, it would make for a bad story, you know, laying all this out. Um, although you do find, you know, they're, they're, they do break down into duties and people have duties and different things like that. But I mean, this is really getting down to the fact that you, you really need to schedule this and have a chart and it needs to be purposeful. And then everybody needs to agree to it. Because if you, let's say your idea is to have everybody gather, you know, on the family farm or whatever, 
But then you have people who are not willing to do that. Or you have teenagers who are like, you know, forget that. You know, I'm just going to go sit under a tree or whatever. Um, you know, that it's, it's not going to be useful. There's going to be resentment. There's going to be problems. And so that's why, you know, in this article, it talked about beforehand, you need to get together and talk about what's going to happen, what, what it's going to look like, what are going to be some consequences, who's going to be in charge and all those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, good article here to kind of get you thinking, because sometimes we think, you know, surviving in the city would be terrible. But then, you know, there's also going to the going out into the country in uh, in rural America. That would be, you know, that's going to have its challenges as well, too. And so uh, lots of things to think about there. So a good article again over at Survival Sullivan. There's a lot of links that you can click into here. So go check that one out. Our next article comes to us from my personal website, edthatmatters.com. And this article is entitled, Survival Gear Dry Run, A Night in the Woods. And so i got to tell you just a little bit about uh, how this article came about. Years ago, I ran a site called yourpreparednessstory.com. And the idea of it was that, you know, there's people out there in the preparedness community who have... Uh, stories and you know they come up with ideas but then it's like okay what do I do with it and so some people do submit their stories to uh, to websites you know uh, and we read those quite often we post those on prepper website a lot of the times I prefer those type of articles where somebody in the preparedness community has written an article of you know of a skill that they know or, or some kind of advice as opposed to you know I get tons of emails where people you know email me asking me to guest post you know hey i like it i like to guest post and blah 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 and all that and so i've developed a canned message i just send and like i'm i'm not accepting can or or guest post anymore just because it's just i can't use them because all they want is a link and so but anyway i I developed this this uh, website your preparedness story spent a lot of time developing it and made it really easy to where people can just really basically drop their story in and then uh, it would be held in moderation for me. And then I would go read it. And if it was good, I would approve it. And it would uh, it would go out. You know, it, it was there. And so um, I ran that for a while. I think it was maybe a year, maybe two years. But it just wasn't getting the traction. People weren't using it like I thought that they would. And uh, so I decided to just, you know, cut costs and save some money. But before I did that, before I just shut it down and I let the, the hosting kind of expire... I downloaded all the articles because a lot of them were very good. And so I downloaded them and then I've uploaded them to Ed That Matters and I slowly release them every so often, right? And so I was going I was going through uh, some of these articles recently and decided to uh, release this one. So, you know, in, in late March. The cool thing about it was is uh, Mick, who, uh, who wrote this one, uh, he saw that I reposted it, right? And so he's like, hey, Todd, I, I just recently or I, I did a 2.0 version of that article and, uh, you know, made some changes and different things like that. So he says, uh, do, you know, do you want that one or, or, you know, what do you want me to do with that one? And uh, I said, hey, if you have a site posted on your site and I'll just link to it from Prepper website. And so if you go to Prepper website, you'll see this one and then you'll see Survivor, Survival Gear Dry Run 2.0. And that's over at Mick's, uh, Mick Rowland's website. And uh, so you can get the second part of that one. But I, I just thought that this one was real good and uh, wanted to post it or repost it again. 
and uh, kind of freshen it up. I gave it a new, uh, you know, some new graphics and different things like that, at least the heading and then also, uh, you know, the Pinterest pin uh, just to kind of get it out there. But uh, some good information here. Uh, I think Mick uh, did a great job of just kind of describing his uh, his time when he went out to the to the to the woods and spent a night you know, in the woods and testing out his gear. So uh, let's go ahead and read this one. One never knows when a crisis might strike. With all the time we spend in our vehicles, it could easily happen while you're on the road and you'll need your emergency gear. With that in mind, I decided to test the emergency backpack I keep in my truck with a survival gear dry run. The test yielded some success and some lessons learned. So bad stuff happens. In the big blizzard of 78, thousands of people in the northeast were trapped in their cars on the interstate, some for days. Some people died. Both my wife and I have lived in rural Minnesota in our younger years, so we were well aware of how easily a car can get stuck off the road and how long it can take for help to arrive. A while back, I assembled emergency bags for both my truck and my wife's car. These were not the classic bug-out bags designed for escaping the zombie apocalypse by fleeing into the hinterlands and living off the land. These were for less dramatic use in case of automotive stranding in adverse conditions. I should note here that the backpacks and contents were nothing special or tactical that would impress gear aficionados. Defining the Test If stranded, one can A. Call for help or B. Sleep in the vehicle. But what if neither of those options was available? Maybe the phone was dead or a vehicle was unsafe to stay in. Playing a game of what if, I wondered if I could use my truck bag to survive a night or more in the woods. Did I have the right gear? Better to find out in practice than during the real thing. So scheduling a crisis. To test my truck bag, I picked a day a couple of weeks in advance. Of course, no one gets two weeks advance warning of a real crisis. Even so, the mental exercise brought on two revelations before I had even begun. Revelation number one, I knew the date but nothing else. Would it be sunny and warm, cold, windy, and rainy? We had temps down in the 30s already. Realizing the uncertainty of the future was a good mental experience. It prompted me to reassess my truck bag's contents to cover a wider range of possibilities. Revelation number two, my truck bag was not equipped for sleeping outside the truck or wet weather. I needed a few more things to cover wet and cold. I added with my wife's help some straps to the bottom of my backpack so I could attach a sleeping bag. I also added a good military style poncho and a couple small tarps among other bits. Only a test run would tell if I had what I needed too much or too little. By the way, the bag weighed in at 21 pounds. So the plan. After work on that scheduled Friday, I would drive to our church after work. Behind the church is 13 acres of mixed forest, and I had permission to make a small campfire there. I planned to arrive, scout out a good spot, and set up camp. I planned to use a tarp to make a quick lean-to and use a long-burning campfire. More on that later. I would have to adapt to whatever the weather conditions were on the actual day. So the testing day. When the day came, the forecast was for a mild day in the evening, but rain to move in around midnight. That Friday's commute home just happened to be a really bad one. Two separate crashes on the interstate caused dozens of miles of backup. The second crash was unusual enough to nearly close the highway. 
And guys, I'm just going to tell you, this article uh, has a lot of pictures in it that you, you'll be interested in, in checking out. Instead of arriving with a couple of hours of daylight remaining, I arrived with very little daylight left. This added realism to my test. Who gets stranded first thing in the morning with all day to set up camp? So making some quick choices. I arrived just as the sun was going down behind the tree line. I put on my backpack and set off into the woods. The spot I had imagined being a good place proved too irregular and lower than I remembered. Not good. I had to spend precious waning daylight to find a better spot. The perfect setup I wanted was a gentle wind at my lean-to's back and just a bit higher than my fire so logs would not come rolling in with me. With little light left, I did not have the time to be choosy. I had to gather firewood while I could see far enough to spot windfall. No wild water. I had my Sawyer Mini along to filter water, but there wasn't any. The swamp was dry. The little stream, which usually babbles, was also dry. I had about a liter with me. Working fast. After I found an adequate spot, I set about finding firewood while I could still see without flashlights. Within about a circle of about 50 yards, I located three fallen oaks that had been down long enough to be dry. My seven saw was marvelous. In a half an hour, I had a half dozen four to five inch logs, each about a yard long and numerous branches for kindling. I hoped it was enough to last the night. Even though the air was getting cool and damp, the exercise had me peeling off the jacket and sweater. I did not need a fire for a while. The headlamp was invaluable for setting up my tarp and things in the failing light. I had a reflective tarp to maximize heat from a modest fire and hopefully enough coverage for when it rained. I could tie knots, pound in stakes, break up kindling, and array my gear all with both hands. The headlamp was a definite plus for such close quarter work. Lonnie of Far North Bushcraft has a YouTube video on the traditional two-log fire. And guys, I, I remember that two-log fire video. Um, it was a great one, so I went and tracked that one down and linked it in the article. So uh, you can link to that one. It's supposed to give a long, slow burn. I knew I would not have time to find such large, dry logs, nor time to help hew them flat on the side like he did. So I set up a variation on the finished gap fire, but by using three smaller diameter logs. They call it a pinotuli or a pile fire. The rule of thumb is that one inch of log diameter equals an hour of burn time in such a fire lay. If so, my four inch logs would give me four hours. I had enough other somewhat smaller logs to add another four hours maybe. I had matches and a little lighter, but just for the bushcraft's sake of it, I lit my fire with a ferro rod and a quarter of a cotton ball soaked in Vaseline. Both worked great. From the little teepee fire, I fed burning sticks into my pile fire to light the kindling. This turned out to be more maintenance intense than I expected. Since real-life logs are more irregular than idealized YouTube, YouTube logs, it took a half hour of fussing and feeding in sticks to get the fire self-sustaining. I almost had flame out a few times. Around 8.30, the fire had spread all along the pile and was radiating nicely. It was time to relax a bit, eat my supper, half a sandwich saved from work, and listen to my little AM-FM radio. Civilization was still out there. The radiant heat was perfect, not too warm, not too feeble. I crawled into my sleeping bag with my flashlight and knife arrayed in easy-to-grab locations. 
I felt like I was never sleeping, but whole hour chunks of time would go by, so I obviously was. Awake at 10.30 and the pile fire is in perfect mid-burn. The heat was just enough. I could see that the top log was about half burned through, so I pulled over its twin for easier deployment when the time came. The air outside of the lean-to was crisp. I could see my breath. I awoke at 12.15 feeling cold. The top log had split and fallen away. I had its replacement and some kindling ready at hand, so I was able to get the fire going again fairly quickly. After a bit of adjustment of the top log, it was time to doze off again. Around 3.30, I awoke again feeling cold. The two bottom logs had burned through and my pile collapsed. I pulled my last fuel logs over and made an ad hoc pile over the coals. They did not take long to become engaged. I dozed off again. A bit before 5 o'clock, I awoke cold again. My ad hoc pile had burned down quickly. My light-duty sleeping bag was not enough. Since I was too cold to go back to sleep, I pulled over my unused kindling and branch wood to make a quicker fire. A little strategic blowing on the coals and the new little fire was crackling nicely. It was surprisingly how great the radiant, radiant warmth of even a small fire felt on cold hands. I set my little camp cup on some mini logs to make some hot water for instant coffee. This took about seven minutes to bubble. Meanwhile, I snacked on a package of trail mix as my breakfast. A hot cup of coffee does wonders, too. The woods were very quiet as the blue light of an overcast dawn grew. Around six o'clock, the crows and chipmunks woke up and it was no longer quiet. Not long Not too long after I had broken down my camp and repacked my gear, it started to sprinkle and later turned to rain. If I had been hard up for water, I could have collected rain, but my test was complete. So the successes. I realized that experienced campers will not be impressed that a guy survived the night in the woods. What my test did prove was that the minimal gear I had in my truck bag was sufficient to get me by if I were stranded far from civilization and I could not stay in my disabled truck. That's good to know. The lessons learned. Have appropriate sleep gear. Get something rated for the weather you're likely to have to endure. A kid's sleeping sleepover sleeping bag, usually rated for 50 or 60 degrees, won't help much when it's below freezing. I'll be replacing my old light-duty bag with a better one. Gather lots of fuel. My rough rule of thumb was to gather three times what I thought I needed to make my initial fire. The pile fire technique Worked great, but still needs refueling. Better to gather extra early than try to look for more in the dark and cold. Bring water. It's a great idea to have the means to filter wild water, but you might get stuck where there isn't any. You don't need to haul around a three-day supply necessarily, but a liter or so can tide you over until you locate more. A big saw is great. Wire saws are okay for kindling or tent poles. Little folding saws are nice for two-inch branches. A bigger aggressive saw like the 7 saw was fairly quickly as producing bigger fuel wood. It can do all the little cutting too. Headlights rock. Flashlights are a must, but being able to work hands-free in the dark is great. So make adjustments. My homemade sleeping bag attachment worked but needs to be tweaked to cinch down tighter and make it easier to put on and take off the backpack. The backpack also needs more inner bags for organizing gear. Loose stuff always falls down deep or is easily lost in leaf litter. 
I'll also be looking to trim a couple pounds wherever I can. With these and some other small adjustments, my truck bag and my wife's car bag will be better set up to get us through a cold weather stranding. They aren't perfect, but after my test, they will be better. All right, so guys, great article, I, I think. I, I, I thought back then in the day, and I still think it's a great article, just getting out there and testing it out. And like I said, uh, Mick has uh, actual pictures of the campsite that he sets up. And, uh, you know, I, it's always good to have, you know, those true to life pictures uh, when, you, when you're out there. So, uh, you know, it's an important thing, I think, to test your gear out and to try it out and to make sure that it's going to hold up the way that you think it's going to hold up and not just to buy all this stuff off of Amazon or, you know, at, you know, the, the sporting goods store and have this great looking bag that you never you never really use. So uh, would would recommend that you go out and use it, even if it's something like, you know, like you buy a, a, a little wood burning stove in, in the, the pot. You know, recently I've, I've uh, showed those and had an article actually uh, about the Ohuhu uh, stove and the, the Alpine pot that nestle all in together in one uh, one little bag. But, you know, you take it outside and actually try it and see how uh, how hard or how easy it is for you to go ahead and start that up and use it like it's supposed to uh, to be used, you know. And, uh, you know, practice with your ferro rods and and practice, you know, uh, starting starting a fire, you know, with uh, the, the kindling and then building it on up and, uh, you know, practice sharpening your knife and cutting wood and, and all that good stuff, you know. Uh, just boiling water, you know, make some coffee outside one morning, one Saturday morning, uh, you know, when, when you don't have to uh, to go to work or, you know, whatever. Just uh, go outside and boil some water and, and make a cup of coffee out there and see, you know, just, just do it and go through that uh, that process. So, uh, you know, you feel comfortable like you're testing your, your gear and uh, all the other things. Going camping, I mean, it's always, always great to do. It's always better to do it, try it, and uh, figure out what you need to, to pick up on and to, uh, to take care of uh, rather than when you really need it and you find yourself you're in a real bind. So, uh, you know, maybe looking forward to reading Mick's, uh, you know, 2.0 version of the test. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll do that here in a future episode, definitely. So, guys, like I said, that's over at edthatmatters.com. Like always, I will link to the episodes in the show notes, and you can go check those out. And, uh, you know, check out the, the, the links. I've placed a lot of other links. And definitely, if you haven't seen Lonnie's video uh, on, uh, on, on his fire logs, I think that was it's just a great video. He, he got a lot of feedback off of that. I know that we, we had a lot of hits from Prepper Website going out that way, but he just, and he has a big following, so he got a lot of uh, feedback on that one. And so uh, definitely that's a great video to go check out and to watch. All right, guys, that's it for episode 289. I hope you enjoyed it. A lot of information to take in there today. Uh, that first one uh, with uh, the multiple families and then uh, the, the gear dry run. Definitely a lot of good stuff there. And so with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.